Father, we come to you in the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, no one can come to you except through him. Because I know my own heart that I am such a sinner, Lord. I have so many problems. I have failed you so much. And in myself, I could never come to you. I could never be in covenant with you. Our hearts are idol factories. We thank you that Jesus is our way. He is our truth. He is our life and he is the way that we're able to come before you. And we pray that this gospel truth would be magnified today. The Jesus who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. The Savior who was headed to the cross. The one who died in our place and for our sins. Help us to appreciate, to grow in passion for this Savior today. In Jesus' name, amen. There once was a boy named Billy who created his very own sock puppet. This sock puppet's name was Oscar, and Oscar was a superhero. Like many superheroes, Oscar could fly and jump over tall buildings with a single bound. And everywhere that Billy went, he took Oscar with him. One night at dinner at the table, Billy became greatly annoyed with his sister Susie because she was chewing her food really loud, smacking away. But suddenly, heroically, Oscar arose from beneath the table. Susie, you're smacking. That's annoying. And as he said that, Oscar punched Susie in the nose. <laughs> Remaining calm, Billy's dad looked up and spoke to Oscar. Oscar, tell Billy to apologize to his sister and to go to his room and do his math. No more dinner for Billy. To which Oscar replied, no thanks. Billy is still hungry. <laughs> And trying to remain composed and keep his control, Billy's dad said, Oscar, you're not a real superhero. You're an empty sock, and whichever boy chooses you to hit his sister and talk back to his dad is a very bad boy. Now go to your room. And as Billy looked up, he realized that his dad's eyes were looking straight into his soul. <laughs> and at that point, Billy realized that when his dad was speaking to Oscar, he was really speaking to him because Billy was the one that created and controlled the sock puppet. Now, the first tip-off that that's fictional is that the dad remained calm. <laughs> uh, maybe that's just me. Um, and don't worry, this is not a sermon on parenting or discipline, and that story is not supposed to be an example of how to be a good parent. I'm not sure if you're supposed to talk to your kid's sock puppet. <laughs> but, um, but really what this message today is about is about that conversation. In today's passage, the Lord will speak directly to the idols that you and I hold in our hearts 
as sock, bu- sock puppets on a boy's hand. But he's really speaking to us. In our passage, Israel's God will speak directly to Israel's idols through the prophet Isaiah. But he's really speaking to Israel. After all, Israel imagined these gods as their real-life superheroes. Gods like Baal and Asherah, the Canaanite gods of agricultural success and fertility. After all, it was Israel that imagined and sustained these gods like a sock puppet on a boy's hand with their sacrifices, building statues. But as we'll see in Isaiah, the glory of God in Christ is that though his people are unfaithful, he is faithful. That though our sin is persistent, persistent even to the grave, he is more persistent than our sin. Jesus is more persistent than your sin. And that is his glory. So please open or power on your Bibles, or if you don't have one, grab one in the back, and open to Isaiah chapter 41, verse 21. Isaiah 41, verse 21. Today we're in the second half of chapter 41, and we're going to go into the the first half of chapter 42. And what I hope to make clear from this passage comes down to two simple questions. First, how does idol worship persistently break you? Second, how does God's persistent grace break the power of idols in your life? So let's take the first question. How does idol worship persistently break you? The text will describe three answers. Abomination, delusion, and humiliation. So if you're taking notes on the little handout, that's your three answers there. Abomination, delusion, and humiliation. The first way idols and idol worship break you is by tempting you to turn yourself into an abomination. We see this in 41, verse 21 through 24. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Verse 23, tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good, do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. Imagine Isaiah and a rebellious Jew carrying in his arms the statues of the main Canaanite gods, Baal and Asherah. They enter a restaurant and they sit around a table for a heavy conversation. The idols get their own chair, of course. The Lord starts to speak to the Baal and Asherah statues through Isaiah in verses 21 through 24. There the Lord issues a challenge to the idols themselves. Explain the past and predict the future. Or as Isaiah says, the former things and the things to come in verse 22. In verse 23, 23, Yahweh essentially says, prove your real gods by doing something, anything, anything at all. Do good, 
do harm, that we may fear you. The idol statues obviously can't speak for themselves or move, and therefore they can't answer or act on the challenge at all. And this, as it turns out, is entirely the point. God is speaking directly to the idols. That the idols can't, don't, and won't talk back only highlights the reality that idols are nothing, idols have nothing, and they can do nothing. And to honor these false gods, while the real God is sitting right there beside you, is the highest insult to him. Think about it. How messed up is it that we choose idols over our Savior? I mean, sports, music, porn, they can't make sense of the past or predict the future, and they don't truly love you at all. Yet we sometimes choose them over Jesus, don't we? Like Adam and Eve in the garden, we face Satan's temptation a thousand times a day, and we choose our response a thousand times a day. Satan says things like he did in the garden. God is a liar. He's selfish. Selfish because he doesn't want you to be happy. He doesn't want you to be like him, knowing good and evil. And he's a liar because he will, you will not surely die, like he said, if you eat of the forbidden tree or if you look at porn, or if you lie, or if you steal, or if you commit adultery. The wages of sin is not death. And then, in the full sight of God, Adam and Eve, and you and I, and every idol worshiper ever, says, you know, Satan, I think you might, you might have a point. So the forbidden tree becomes the very first, the original idol, because at that point, it now represents an alternative theology and a new morality. That's what idols do. Believing Satan's lie has been the foundation for creating alternative theologies and life philosophies for millennia. Even theologies that we hear today, like there's no such thing as God, or there's no such thing as biologically defined gender. We aren't all professional theologians, but every human is a natural-born theologian, thinking and acting theologically. And this is what the first and second commandments from Moses are all about. The first commandment outlawed creating alternative theologies, alternative deities, and even alternative non-biblical beliefs about the true God. For it's this sin that's the sin beneath all sin, isn't it? This is the sinful taproot of the whole sinful tree. The second commandment outlawed creating physical representations of these alternative theologies and philosophies of life called idols and using these images for false religion. Idol images do at least three things in scripture and in our lives. Number one, they influence culture. Number two, they tempt worshipers. Number three, they assist the worship of false gods and false theologies. <clears throat> Think about the pervasive effect of pornographic images here. They influ influence culture's view of men and women in relationships. They tempt us to worship, and they assist us to worship. So it is that the false gods of the first commandment are represented in the tangible images of false gods in the second commandment. 
An alternative theology exists in the mind and the heart of the sinner, but the alternative theology is represented and proclaimed by the sinner through a visible and external image. Think about how this translates today. On social media, how often are pictures and videos connected to or representative of alternative theologies and non-biblical philosophies of life? Isn't it everywhere? Nothing wrong with posting pictures and videos, of course. We've all done it, and there's nothing wrong with that. But once the pictures and videos represent false theologies and non-biblical philosophies of life, now we have to ask the question of if they've transformed inside of our hearts or on the screen into the carved images of the second commandment. And this takes discernment and biblical awareness and the power of the Holy Spirit for us to see. Nowadays, we don't need a carved wood statue or to hammer metal to make an image that helps us exalt a counter-theology, do we? It's as easy as hitting record and then hitting post. And this doesn't mean all images and videos on the internet are idols, does it? But it does mean that the first and second commandment in verses 21 through 24 in our passage are completely relevant today, doesn't it? Listen to verse 24, talk to your false gods again. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination, that means moral sewage or filth, is he who chooses you. Verse 24 is saying, those who choose the alternative theologies represented by the physical statues of Baal and Asherah, those who choose them over the Lord of all creation, make themselves into moral filth, moral sewage, an abomination. Because that's what an abomination is, moral sewage. So God is saying to our idols in verse 24, whoever chooses you, you make believe God's. Whoever chooses you over me is making a nasty and disgusting statement about how unworthy I am. And that makes the idolater the nasty and disgusting thing, the abomination, not me. Dishonoring me doesn't bring me down, not for a thousand years, says God. It only ruins you. Verse 24, behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. So that was the first way that idols break you. They persistently tempt you to turn yourself into an abomination. The second way that idols break you is that idols trap you into a delusion of false worship. Look at 41 verse 29. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. The verse is set up with the first line giving us the main point. Behold, they are all a delusion. The second and third line clarify the main point by answering the question, how exactly are idols a delusion? The text answers, this is how. First, their works are nothing. And next, their metal images are empty wind. Since false gods represented by images are the imaginary heroes of self-justifying and self-glorifying sinners, then to truly believe that false gods are real is the height of delusion. It's like sticking your hand in a sock, asking it to do things for you, and when you move, I mean when it moves, to do your will, 
you believe the sock is responsible. How delusional is that? A delusion is simply a false belief that a person holds in spite of clear and undeniable evidence that they're wrong. In verse 29, Isaiah is saying that a person who believes in idols is like the man whose wife took him to the doctor because he believed he was dead. (laughs) When the doctor couldn't convince him he was alive using reasoning, he took out a lance and he poked the man's finger and said, See, dead men don't bleed. And as the blood dripped from his finger, the man's eyes widened and he said, Huh, I guess dead men do bleed after all. (laughs) And that is idolatry. It's a paralyzing self-deception that believes in alternative theologies against all reason and evidence in nature's general revelation and in the Bible's special revelation. In other words, idols invite us to suspend reality and to enter a false story. Billy suspended the reality of right and wrong and the reality of his dad sitting at the dinner table when he hit his sister with Oscar the sock puppet as if he would be considered innocent right? It takes the same suspension of reality to steal, to lie, to commit adultery with porn or a person, and so on. But as Billy learned, and we've all experienced, God is faithful to make the suspended reality clap back at us. And today's passage is here to tell you, you don't have to wait for everything to start crashing down to repent. You can do it now. You have a choice. And the next point of the message is what will happen to us if we choose poorly. So we first saw that idols break us when they tempt us to turn ourselves into abominations. Second, we just saw that idols also break us by trapping us in a delusion of false worship. Let's look at the third way that idols break us in the text. The third way idols break you is by tricking you into humiliation. Turn to 42, verse 17. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. So notice in 42, verse 17, false gods trick their worshipers into getting humiliated. That's why it says they're turned back and utterly put to shame. Idols say, you know, come on over here. And all your dreams will come true. But when you get there, it's a lie. Then you turn back in shame because you just got duped. As we discussed earlier, a false god makes you, the worshiper, think you're walking into meaning and happiness. That's the delusion. Only to find you've been walking down a never-ending dead-end street. And you've been wallowing in moral filth. Sin and the idolatry under your sin play you for a fool. And what 42.17 says is that the abomination and delusion of idolatry bring shame on you. Guilt is when you know you've done wrong. But shame happens when everyone else finds out that you're guilty. Or even when you imagine that they find out. Shame, it leaves you feeling naked, dirty, and undesirable in the eyes of others and of God. Just look what happened to Adam and Eve, who instantly felt the need for clothes after sinning and hid from God in the garden. 
Just ask the man caught in adultery if his folly made him look good to his wife, kids, and extended family. So Hope Chapel, beware of false gods and their physical representations in pictures, videos, and objects, and people. False gods through pictures and objects can lead you to false moralities, which leads you to shame. And that's why today's text ends with this final thought in 42 verse 17. Idols will stab you in the back. They'll wreck your life if you trust them. They'll wreck your marriage. They'll wreck your family. They'll shame you. So don't trust them. Delete all those idol images saved on your phone or your hard drive or your social media profiles. Why? 42.17 answers. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. So we saw false gods persistently break us by doing three things. They tempt us to turn ourselves into abominations, moral sewage. They trap us in the delusion of false worship. And the third thing, they trick us into humiliation. And now that we've answered the first question of how false gods and their idols persistently break us, let's look at the second question. How does the Lord's persistent grace break the power of idolatry in your life? It turns out that our text describes three answers to this question by revealing, first, the sovereignty of the Lord, second, the servant of the Lord, and third, the certainty of the Lord's eternal praise and victory. So the first way the Lord's persistent grace breaks the power of idols in you is by revealing the sovereignty of the Lord. Look at verse 25. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. So remember, in verses 21 through 24, right before this verse, we saw God direct a challenge square in the face of Judah's idols. Tell us the former things, or explain history, and tell us the things to come. Predict the future. We saw in verses 24 and 29 how the idols were silent and they couldn't do anything to meet the challenge. Now in verse 25, the Lord begins his project of answering his own challenge that he gave to the idols by explaining history. He'll later predict the future in chapter 42, crushing the challenge that the Canaanite gods failed. Verse 25 is Yahweh telling us the former things, what they are or explaining history. In other words, the Lord says, you know, I can explain history to you in one word. Me. Verse 25. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Here the Lord through Isaiah is pointing out that when it comes to history, and the choices of kings and governments, and of nations, and how those nations would come against the children of Abraham, it's the king of Jacob who reigns supreme. The king of Jacob is the one who stirred up one from the north. That is sovereignty. 
I would suggest to you that verse 25 is a reference back to chapter 39. There in chapter 39, the Babylonian envoys toured Jerusalem's riches with King Hezekiah, and Isaiah then prophesied that the Babylonians would one day return to steal everything and everyone. The one from the north in verse 25 is probably Babylon. Isaiah also says in verse 25, He shall call upon my name. And we know from the book of Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar, the future Babylonian king, would call upon the name of the Lord. Isaiah continues in verse 25 stating that this one from the north will successfully conquer many nations, just as Babylon would do someday, saying, He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. So the point is, that God already revealed this one from the north in the past about this king who will come in the future. While God was busy guiding the covenant people of Israel through life in the past with his prophets and by his word, what were Baal and Asherah doing? What were they doing for God's people? Verses 26 through 28. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know and beforehand that we might say, he is right. There was none. There was none who declared it. None who proclaimed. None who heard your words. In other words, in the past, when I was prophesying the days of Babylon in the future, Baal and Asherah, you were silent. That's because you ain't got nothing. You can't, you don't, and you won't love my people like I do. Because only I am sovereign over history. Verse 27. I was the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. So the Lord is saying, The glory of my persistent grace is unparalleled by Canaanite gods like Baal and Asherah. I was the first one to warn Israel about Babylon coming to tear apart their families and take them into exile because of their sin. But then, at the same time, I sent Isaiah to comfort the people, to comfort you as the reality of coming judgment sets in. Remember right after I prophesied judgment in chapter 39, what I said in chapter 40, verse 1? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. So Isaiah is the herald of good news, mentioned in verse 27. Again, Isaiah keeps hammering. Where were you, Baal and Asherah? Verse 28. But when I look, there was no one. Among these, there is no counselor. Who, when I ask, gives an answer? Mums the word. The idols of the Canaanites that the, the, the Israelites have sacrificed to. Those idols' mouths are locked and the key is thrown away. These so-called gods are good for nothing. Their glory is just shame. They require sacrifice, but they never do anything for the people. And that's how it is today with our idols. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, do your idols take care of you like Jesus? Do your idols make sense of life in a fallen world through a grand origin to destiny story of redemption called the Bible, culminating in the gospel of Christ? Do your idols explain history and predict the future? No, they're silent. They don't love you like Jesus does. For all the times you viewed pornography, how much has pornography ever loved you back? 
for all the love you give sports, have the athletic trophies ever died on a cross to save you? For all your love of money, has money ever been there to hold your hand or give you a tissue when you've lost a loved one? For all you do for the love of your political party, will your party sit with you at the chemotherapy clinic? Do your idols love you like Jesus has? While Jesus was busy sovereignly orchestrating history and stepping into it to die on the cross for your sins and fulfill the scriptures, all these idols of yours and mine have been dead silent. Crickets, mums the word. They're not sovereign, nor can they speak. So the first way that we see in the text and in our life that the persistent grace of God breaks the power of idolatry is by revealing to you and me the glory of his sovereignty over history, which he doesn't use merely like a party trick. The Savior has used his superior sovereignty to save your soul. So let go of your idols. Now the second way that the Lord's persistent grace breaks the power of idolatry is through the revelation of his servant. We see this starting in 42 verses 1 through 4. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faint, faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So notice how 42 verse 1 contrasts 41 verse 29. 41 verse 29 said, Behold, idols are a delusion. Now 42 verse 1 says, Behold my servant in whom my soul delights. So two things to behold, one bad, one infinitely good. Man's delusion is the dead idols on the one hand, and God's delight is a living person on the other. And that's who the Lord calls my servant. And notice when the Lord speaks about the servant himself and his relationship to the servant, the Lord speaks in the present tense. But when he speaks about the servant's mission, and the manner of his ministry in the world, then the Lord shifts to using the future tense. Verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold. Present tense. My chosen, in whom my soul delights. Present tense. I have put my spirit upon him. Present tense. Then it's future tense from here on out, speaking about the servant's mission and his manner of ministry in the earth. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will, will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So Yahweh already has a present relationship with this servant. The Lord says, the servant is currently, now, my servant. Yahweh upholds this servant now. He's the Lord's chosen now. 
He's got the God of Jacob's delight now. And he put his spirit upon this servant even now. Yet this servant has a future mission. A future mission on earth that brings about Yahweh's perfect justice, not merely to the nation of Israel, but to all the nations of the world. Verses 3 through 4. So this is supposed to be convicting for Isaiah's audience. And here's why. The servant in chapter 42 is bringing God's justice to earth. The same justice that Israel was called to bring to earth, but didn't. This servant will do what Israel failed to do. We read this in chapter 1, verses 17 and 21. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Verse 21, how the faithful city has become a whore. She was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her. But now, murderers. Yet, in contrast to Judah in chapter 1, the Lord's servant in chapter 42 will bring about perfect global justice. That's his mission. And how will this servant bring about this justice? By what manner of ministry does the servant secure perfect global justice? By killing everyone who doesn't comply? No. It's through gentleness and humility. Look at the text, 42 verse 2. It says, He won't cry aloud or lift his voice or make it heard in the street. That's humility. Verse 3 says, A bruised reed he won't break and a faintly burning wick he won't quench. That's gentleness. So to sum up verses 1 through 4, this servant is currently alive and in perfect relationship with God and with the Holy Spirit in Isaiah's day, and yet will exist in the future tense to bring about perfect global justice through humility, not arrogant bravado, and through gentleness, not terrorism, like the rulers of that day did. That sounds like the eternal God-man, Jesus Christ, who came to the earth the first time 700 years later and will come again at the end of time to create a new earth. Next, in verses 5 through 9, Yahweh addresses this servant, revealing that this servant is, in himself, a gospel for the nations. In other words, the servant is to be a message of salvation for the Gentiles, the non-Jews. That's people like us today. Pick it up in verse 5. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open blind to eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name, and my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. What? What a gospel, amen? The God of all creation who gives life to everyone, that's verse 5, will give this servant as a covenant for the people of the world and a light for the nations, verse 6. 
And he will set people free from a spiritual dungeon by opening the eyes of their hearts. Verse 7. Then Isaiah says this gospel is revealed exactly because God has a commitment to his own glory and a vendetta against the idols that in the hands of, and hearts of sinners try ineffectively to steal his glory. Verse 8. Because only the true and living covenant God of the Bible can explain history and predict the future and bring it about while also maintaining everything else. In 42 verses 1 through 9, Isaiah, 700 years before Christ came, is proclaiming a very unique individual, bringing about a fully just world and personifying a very unique gospel for the nations. Through his servant, Yahweh's persistent grace leaves our false gods in the dust. And you can just hear Jesus on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, talking about maybe this exact passage and saying, and that, my friends, is all about me. What a Savior. What a Savior, y'all. Is he? Amen. But how then... Can pornography compare to these profound truths? Or sports to so great a savior? Or the great outdoors to so great a God? Or social media and selfies to such spiritual truths? And that's the point of all of this. They cannot. So may God help us to repent and to put our faith in Christ. Now there's yet another profound truth in this section about the servant that the Holy Spirit Spirit may just use with your heart today. As you study chapters 40 through 55 of Isaiah, something massively profound begins to emerge. 42, 1 through 9 is the first of what are called the four servant songs of Isaiah, which are messianic prophecies. The second servant, servant song is found in 49, verses 1 through 6, the third is found in chapter 50, verses 4 through 11. And the fourth is in chapter 52, 13 through 53, 12. So while it's true that Isaiah uses the word servant 34 times in the whole book of Isaiah, let's notice that he doesn't use the word in the same way throughout the book. In the first 40 chapters of Isaiah, the word servant is used more literally and descriptively. For example, chapter 37, verse 5 says the servants of Hezekiah came to Isaiah. Or 37 verse 35, which is a reference to King David as the Lord's servant. But a shift in how Isaiah uses the word servant happens after chapter 40, beginning in chapter 41 verse 8. There, the word servant shifts from a literal descriptive term relating historical narrative to a figurative spiritual term pointing to Israel's true eternal covenant identity. Look how Isaiah uses the word servant in chapter 41 verse 8 to refer to Israel as a nation. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. So notice in verse 8, my servant refers to Israel as a whole nation. They are by definition and by covenant the Lord's servant. Now zoom past today's text to the second servant song in chapter 49. Look at 49 verse 3, where the Messiah servant says this, And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. 
So here in 49 verse 3, we see that there's a connection between the, the servant in the servant songs and Israel as a nation. In 49 verse 3, the servant himself is called Israel, which means the Messiah, the Christ, will stand for the whole nation as a representative head. And here's why this matters. In 41 verse 8, we learn what Israel ought to be, but fails to live up to. Israel's identity is that they are the servant of the Lord in 41 verse 8. Yet all of Isaiah, the whole book thus far, has shown that they failed to live up to this role. And we'll also see this clearly next week. Israel and all her covenant heads have failed. All of their covenant representatives. But that's why what we see in today's text and what we read in 49 verse 3 and in all the servant songs of Isaiah is good news. Because Christ, as the perfect servant and representative head, stands for the whole nation who is also his servant as a corporate body. Christ, as the morally perfect servant of the Lord in Isaiah, is the representative head of God's people in the pages of Isaiah. This means that Christ, he redeems the failures of every representative head of each progressive covenant of the Old Testament and all the failures of the people represented by, represented by those leaders. Where Adam failed, the servant will not. Where Noah failed, the servant will not. Where Abraham failed, the servant will not. Where Moses failed, the servant will not. And where David failed, the servant in Isaiah will not. These men are all imperfect and fallen representative heads of God's fallen and imperfect people. But this servant prophesied in Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 52 through 53 in the four servant songs is the perfect, the final, the fully sufficient representative head of God's covenant people and therefore the representative of all peoples and nations before God. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And as we saw already, this servant is Jesus. As we'll see in the rest of our passage, the servant as the representative, representative covenantal head of God's people not only points backward to the fulfillment of the Old Testament and all the old covenants, but also forward to the new covenant in Christ's blood by which all the, the non-Jews, all the nations beyond Israel can be grafted into the children of Abraham through faith in Christ and repentance of sin. Talk about the glory of persistent grace for your soul, Hope Chapel. If you feel the guilt and shame of your idolatry today, I have good news for you. Rejoice. Rejoice, for Christ is your representative head. In him, your sins are canceled. In him, your wrath debt is paid. In him, your eternal righteousness is secured. If only you will place your faith in him and keep it there to the end. For if you place your faith in him, he will keep you to the end. In the light of this great gospel, reflect on how the objects and images that help you sin will last a mere handful of decades. But Christ, the servant of the Lord, will last forever. The Lord revealed him to Israel then and to us now so that our idols will feel as stupid and worthless as they really are. That the power of idol worship to break you 
would be broken in your life today, even in this moment. So we see in our text that the persistent grace of God breaks the power of idols by first revealing the sovereignty of God, second, revealing the servant of God, and now finally let's look at the third element, which is that he reveals the certainty of his eternal praise and victory. Chapter 42, verses 10 through 16. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. This is referring to Canaanites like those that originally lived near Israel on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Verse 11. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kadar inhabits. So Kadar is the name of one of Ishmael's sons whose descendants, like Ishmael, were not sons of the promise to Abraham. So they're outside of Israel. Continuing in 11, Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. And so Selah was a region where the Amorites used to live, historically. Another Gentile Canaanite nation. Verse 12, Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time, I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light. The rough places into level ground. These are the things I do and I do not forsake them. So these final verses picture a day when all the nations of the non-Jewish, not yet covenanted world praise the Lord in heaven. Verses 12 through 13. And at the same time, we see one final picture of the servant who has brought about this global worship service through full and complete victory. Verses 14 to 16. No longer in the gentleness and quietness of verses 1 through 4 will he work his redemption. In the end of all things, the servant will cry aloud and crush the mountains and all those who stand against him. Verse 15. Here at the end of the last days, the lamb shows that he is a lion. It's like what we hear from C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Although Jesus is good, he is not tame. This song and the ultimate picture of the servant being sung about is a picture of just how long God will persist in his grace against your persistent sin and idolatry. Till the end of time, that's how long. Your idol worship can't outsmart or outlast your Savior. So why not let go of the porn, the pride, the greed, the fear, or whichever idol plagues you? Instead, put your hope and happiness in that final cosmic worship service. 
where with the people from every tribe and nation, you'll give glory and declare the praise of that poorest of poor carpenters who humbly and quietly entered Jerusalem on a young donkey on the first Palm Sunday, a week before his crucifixion. And it will be a small foretaste of that great and final day where instead of riding a colt, he'll ride the clouds. Amen. Pray with me. Jesus, apart from you, we can do nothing. Apart from your grace, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, We thank you for revealing your sovereignty to us. Revealing yourself. Revealing that you have won and you will win decisively. That every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. And we desire, we desire to bear fruit. We desire to radically break free from these idols that are breaking us. We desire, because of your word, to live as people captivated by your sovereignty. Overwhelmed with the greatness of Jesus who fulfilled all of the Old Testament. To be those who taste a bit of heaven every day worshiping with people different from us. People from every tribe, nation, language, people, ethnicity. Your gospel is for everyone. Give us a passion for the people around us to be set free from idolatry, to know the true God through Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to bear fruit according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.